Dan was speaking about the times and seasons, I couldn't help but think of the fact that the time changed this morning. And uh, it always makes me apprehensive the night of the time change that I'm going to miss it. And it's interesting that we lost an hour. And somehow that's fitting for what we feel that God is doing at this time. That there's, as Paul said, it is high time that we awake out of our sleep. Amen. For the night is already at hand. And you think of what God wants to do and the work he wants to accomplish in us and through us. And uh, it feels like we've lost more than an hour. Much of what I want to share with you this morning will not be unfamiliar to you, but I'll say with Peter that it doesn't do you any harm and it doesn't bother me to repeat it. In Matthew 3, 7, you don't have to go there. I'll start assigning here in just a second, but bear with me. In Matthew 3, 7, John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord. Every valley is being exalted and every mountain and high hill brought low. The rugged places are being made smooth because the barriers of pride that block God's entrance are being removed in repentance. That's what repentance does. And in the third chapter of Matthew, the Pharisees, who seem to be the most devout, serious group of believers of that day, they came out to be baptized by John in the Jordan. It says that all of, of Jerusalem and Judea were going to him, and they said, hey guys, let's go too. And when they came, John did not roll out the red carpet for them. He looked up and saw them and said, hey you snakes, who gave you the message? That's a paraphrase, but you know what I'm getting at. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? It's like, you weren't on the message tree. How did you hear about this? Not exactly a welcome. Would you agree? And he then told them that they had to do something before they could be baptized. He said, you go and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Because the axe is already laid at the, at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We're not told what they said in response. They probably didn't say anything to him. They probably whispered to each other on their way back toward the temple and their security there. But we're told in Matthew 11 and Mark and also Luke gives an acknowledgement to it. We're told that just before Jesus died, he revives this injunction of John and presents it again to the Pharisees to see what they did with it. Just before Jesus died, he's going to the temple and he's coming from Beth Bethany. Thank you. And as he's passing by, he sees a fig tree that is symbolic of the Israel of God, God's people. And he's hungry, and he says he goes and looks to find something on this fig tree, and he finds nothing but leaves, appearances without fruit. The appearance of health without the substance of life. 
And it says this is because it was not the season for figs. But Jesus pronounces a condemnation, or you might say a curse, on the fig tree. And the curse is, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And he goes into the temple. Now, he wasn't having, he wasn't battling with anger management problems that morning. Nor was he particularly wrathful at a piece of wood for not having breakfast for him. Can we all agree with that? This is all symbolic. This tree is symbolic of the people he's about to encounter. And he walks into the temple and he begins to cleanse the temple. He begins to make big changes. It makes me think of what Brother Kevin was saying. This is God moving through Christ in a manner that they had never experienced, were not expecting, and didn't know how to respond to. And their response to him indicates that they did not obey the word of John back in Matthew 3. They come to him and they challenge his authority to have such access into their lives and religion. They say to him, by what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And this is an immediate indication from Jesus that they have not come to repentance. And so he takes them back to John. And he says that baptism that you wanted, that he put a requirement in front of you, that you should, that you should bear fruit before you could have that baptism, was it of God or was it of man? Do you remember? Now I want to ask you, why did Jesus think that a clear fruit of repentance would have been a recognition of God's authority even when it operated in a manner different than we expect. Jesus thinks that if they had come to repentance, they would have recognized the authority that was at work through Him in doing unheard of things by cleansing their temple. And when they don't know the authority. When they don't know where it's coming from, he knows they haven't come to repentance. That is the clear, conspicuous lack of fruit that John also discerned when they asked for baptism. Why do you think that is? Does it not speak to us even about what repentance is? Just a few verses later, Jesus illuminates this a little more when he stands on the Mount of Olives and he looks at the temple and those people who rejected him and he weeps. What does he say in his weeping? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. Do you hear the connection there? How often I would have. There are forms of theology, theology, just such as the Reformed theology, that give no allowance for God weeping and saying, I would have, but you were unwilling. 
in his supreme sovereignty, he gave us the choice to respond to his authority in the manner we choose. We can't accept it without his help. We can't elect to just be his disciple on a whim one day when the wind seems right. We have to wait for that moment, that propitious opportunity Brother Dan was speaking about when grace is flowing and we can reciprocate and give back to God the thing that he has given to us. But in this case, they didn't receive it and he wept. He said, if you had known what made for your peace, but now your house is being left to you desolate. Their house was going to undergo a shaking. It was either going to be cleaned or desolate. And they chose desolation because they did not come to repentance. And therefore, they rejected those whom God sent to them. And they, because they could not identify and recognize what authority it was operating through those sent messengers. Many would like to reduce repentance to sorrow for what we've done. And it certainly includes that. But is it 2 Corinthians 7 that Paul says there are two kinds of sorrow? One leads to death, despair, giving up. That's the sorrow that Judas had when he saw he had betrayed innocent blood. And then Paul speaks of another kind of sorrow and he says it leads to repentance. It takes you by the hand and pulls you in the direction of repentance. But it is not repentance. It is merely a leading agent moving you in the direction of repentance. But what is repentance? I think the simplest definition I could give for repentance is it is the expulsion of our will from the executive throne of our lives. We're born dependent and through what we learn, through the maturation of our mind and pride, strength, stature, we begin to make decisions for ourselves. We begin to think that we are the gods of our lives. And we enthrone our will, our choice, our autonomy over our lives. And we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And so when somebody comes in and starts doing something in our temple that we don't do and that we've never seen done we don't it bothers us it rattles us it upsets us because we want to be in control everything about the way we comport ourselves about the way we moderate our emotions guard our vulnerability it's all to keep control ultimately it's an illusion of control isn't it because James says, what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a short while and then vanishes away. But the world buttresses that illusion of control, knowing that it is rooted in fear, so the one who's really controlling us 
is the one who controls the power of death. That is the devil who holds us in bondage all our lifetime through the fear of death. But he fuels this, this notion of control. And we, we judge our freedom based on the control that we think we have over our lives. And repentance is when we come in contact with someone whose character and love are so magnificent, so great and overwhelming that we find the courage to believe them to the point of getting off the throne and letting them take the seat and start making the decisions. And the paradox of the New Testament is that they call that freedom and the other bondage. So you can see why repentance, a fruit of repentance, is a recognition of the presence of the one you have ceded control to. It doesn't mean you understand it, but it means you know it and you trust it. When Jesus spoke things that the Pharisees didn't understand, they hated him, they judged him, and they rejected him. When Jesus cleansed the temple and the Pharisees didn't understand it, they challenged him and they crucified him. But did Jesus ever speak things that the apostles didn't understand? And what did they do when that happened? They said, I'm going to paraphrase, sure we don't understand it, but we don't have any choice about leaving because we trust it. You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? There's a relationship here, God. And when you trust someone, when you don't understand what they're doing, you can call it faith. And when that trust is more than a mental assent, when it in fact is followed up by actions that totally change the course of your life, you can call it faith. If it, if it is a trust that stays imprisoned only in your mind and your heart as a pious concept that never comes alive in obedience, then you can call it the corpse of faith. Because James says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, I don't believe there's anybody in this room who can say their name who doesn't know, basically, that we are justified by faith. Can I get a witness? Okay, so we don't have to argue that point. Luther, you won. We all agree. Oh, but we don't. We don't. Because it's very possible for us to tout a faith that is merely a corpse faith. That is a cadaverous shell. In name only can it be called faith because it is not alive. And he says just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. If you take the spirit out of a body, is that still the person? You take the spirit out of a dog. Is that still your dog? Lying there on the porch, 13 years old, 
you say he's gone, right? And when you take that active obedience out of faith, you say he's gone. <laughs> Whatever this is, it is not faith. But when your belief is sincere, such that you would trust the authority of one who is transgressing your will because you know and recognize the burning heart recognition of his voice and his presence, then you might be able to call that faith. When he's really the Lord. You see, nobody likes to think of lordship because we all like to imagine that we are the lords of our lives. I want to ask you something. Is there submission in the world in which we live? Are, are people everywhere called and expected to submit, whether they believe in Christ or not? We know that to come to Christ, we have to take off our crown, we have to take, get off the throne, and we have to put Him in our place, right? We have to worship Him as God instead of worshiping ourselves as God. But what about in the world? Do people in the world submit? Why do you say that? What do they submit to? You say, well, the state. Yes, okay, I accept that. But what about spiritual powers or emotional powers? Are people generally free until they come to the church? Oh, I think some teenagers might argue with you. <laughs> come on, are people generally free until they come to the church? What, do you, what are they in submission to? I just think about when I was in the world. I mean, if you listened to a certain set of music, that precluded anybody who didn't listen to that set of music. If you wore a certain type of clothes, if you were, watched a certain type of show, those people are, are, are all in bondage to the, 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 the ministry of that world. Anybody from that world, could you acknowledge that, let's just use, we'll change the word authority and change it to pressures. Could you acknowledge that there are powerful pressures guiding human existence in that culture? I, I just think of, you know, growing up, and uh, like, like he said, there's television and all these things, but then when you start actually encountering people, there's expectations. Uh, it's uh, how far have you gotten, you know, in, in this sphere of relationship, you know, and, and uh, you know, have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried that? And there's this one-upmanship, this competition, and all of a sudden you're just drowning, and you're just stressing. I gotta get, I gotta, you know, I gotta beat this guy. I gotta, I gotta, get, I gotta get the latest this, and you know, and it's it's pressure all over. Amen. And do those pressures manifest themselves as an individual who died on the cross for you? Do they upfront tell you you need to surrender your lordship and godship, and and become a child again? They tell you you're free. They promise them liberty while they themselves are slaves to corruption. They say, be free, be your own man. That is the mantra of enslavement all around us. Be your own man. And the devil's smirking, saying, all those own men. Because that's what he said at the garden. You will be gods, knowing for yourself good and evil. And is that what happened? Are you allowed to be different? Do you feel accepted, embraced? Do you feel life if you are different 
from the way that world says you should be. No, you're not. Oh, you can be different within a certain list of oddities that they've decided are normal. That are not normal. <laughs> but if you, if you deviate too far from that paradigm, how many of you remember what happened when Christian and faithful, or was it hopeful, I can't ever remember, got to Vanity Fair? Were they pretty much welcomed there? Or were there a couple subtle pressures at work? Do you remember what happened when they got to Vanity Fair? There was a good bit of pressure. What will you buy? If, if let's say, a teenage girl goes to school at the Connolly High right here down the road, is she allowed to dress pretty much like one of our girls' dresses? Absolutely not. What about a, a guy? Is he allowed to behave pretty much like one of our guys behaves? My mom's cousin, who's from California, uh, must have been uh, 20 years ago or more. She, in, uh, yeah, 21 years ago, 22 years ago. She said, I firmly believe that if two or more of your men from this community walked down the street in San Francisco, they would be in grave danger for their survival. And we kind of probed why. And she, because they were so different. You're not allowed to be that different. Everybody's submitting. How did Bob Dylan say it? You got to serve somebody. Everybody's submitting. The devil gives us this false equation. He says, liberty, self-made men, autonomy, willpower. And then, of course, this bondage in Christ. It's a lie. They promise them liberty while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. If there's something in you that says, I want to do that. I want to be that. I want to be different. But you can't. Then you are the slave of that dynamic that disallows that transformation. So who is the Lord of your life? Danny, read Romans 2.8. You can start in verse 7 if you want to. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So he says that there are two camps. Those who do not obey the truth, and those who do. Is that how he says it? How does he say it? Those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There's no neutral ground. You're either gathering with him or you're scattering abroad. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no neutral ground. Do you hear that? And you say, I don't want to obey the truth. Why not? Because I want to be in control. But when you choose not to give God the control, you are still obeying unrighteousness. You are still ceding control to powers outside yourself. But they are not powers that have died on a cross for you. They are not powers that would come and love you 
and fill you with grace as we have felt this morning. They are powers that will isolate you and make a fool of you. And on the day of your death, the one thing you will not be is in control. So who is the Lord of your life? Who are you obeying? Who has immediate access and control? Well, that'll tell you if you are repented. Will it not? Can we do God's will apart from God? Can we? God's demands for righteousness are an invitation to relationship. They're not to make us feel bad. They're not to make fools out of us. He's asked us to do things that we must do, but which we can't do apart from His help. Do you see that? And everywhere Christians are trying to find a Christianity that they can do without God's help. But God is trying to give us a Christianity that we cannot do without dependence. Daily dependence on Him. Which one gives Him glory? And which one allows us to boast? Whatever you can do without God's help through the Spirit, don't call it righteousness. Call it human works. Whether it be circumcision or animal sacrifices or the ceremonial law or the sinner's prayer or shallow ascension to the facts of Jesus, whatever you can do without the empowering of the Spirit, call that works. Call that human works, whether it be doctrines about God. But whatever you can do with Him, but you are utterly powerless to accomplish without Him, call that the work of God. Call that salvation in a relationship with the living God. Brother Daniel, would you, get to, would you turn to John 15? 1 through 5. Or you, you jump down to 7 and I'll do 1 through 5. Every branch that does not bear fruit is cut off. But every branch that does bear fruit is pruned. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Can everybody say by itself? by itself? What can you do in terms of righteousness or worthwhileness at all without God? No branch can bear fruit by itself. Verse 5. You want to just read it, Brother Daniel? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, we know that we can do much without him, but we can assume he's talking about nothing good. We can make a lot of trouble without God, can't we? But when he says, without me, you can do nothing, but abide in me and you will bear much fruit. For the branch by itself cannot bear any fruit. 
If you abide in me, he says in verse 7, and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done. What is the prerequisite for power and fruitfulness and victory in a Christian's life? An abiding relationship where we are in Christ Jesus. If you ask whatever you want, if you ask whatever you wish, and it is not done for you, what does that tell you? If, in short, you ask for power to change, and you do not have power to change, what does that tell you? That tells you you are not in Him. You are a branch that does not bear fruit, because the life that produces fruit in the branch derives from the trunk and the root and the tree that is Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this. Now there are theologies today that would tell you that flesh is glorified in works. And if they refer to works that can be done apart from a relationship with God, I agree. But if they refer to the works that cannot be done except by relationship with God, Jesus disagrees. He says, what you're doing, what happens when you're abiding in me results in the glory of my Father. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What has Jesus just told us is a proof that we are his disciples. Much fruit. Abundant fruit is proof that we are his disciples. So is an absence of fruit proof that we are not his disciples? Most tragically, definitely. That proves that we are a branch that has been severed from Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 5.4. Amen. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you as legalistic Christians. <laughs> Is that what he said? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and flesh may boast. What did he say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and thank your Father. <laughs> because these are the works that we cannot produce apart from Him. And therefore, which He alone can receive the credit for. In Matthew 10, He said, when you're brought before rulers, do not be afraid about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it, for in that very hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. And then He says, and it will not be you speaking. The righteousness that God invites us to participate in is impossible without a relationship. But when we enter into it, we can honestly say, that's not me. 
If there's any good, it is the Lord. Amen. We've talked recently in many circumstances how in Matthew 5, he came and he saw a standard of righteousness that was beyond human reach in the law. He told the Pharisees, you heap on people a burden too great to bear. He saw in the law a standard of righteousness that was beyond our reach. And so he grabbed that standard and he pulled it down. And he said, all you have to do is believe, right? No. In Matthew 5, he took that standard that was six inches out of their reach and he raised it six feet out of their reach. And he said, now you got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why would he say something like that? Why would he say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God? Because he was wanting us to look back to Daddy and say, I can't, Daddy, can you help me? His demand to righteousness is an invitation to relationship. He's not trying to mock us. When man tells you something to do that is impossible for you, it is mockery. When God tells you something to do that is impossible for you, it is a miracle. If a carnal jerk walked up to the man at the pool of Siloam who had been laying there paralyzed for 40 years and said, Hey, chap, get up and walk and take your mat home while you're at it. That would have been mockery. When man tells you to do the righteousness of God, it's mockery because we can't. But when God comes to the pool of Siloam and says, Arise, take up your mat and walk, in the words of command are the grace to do them. And the man responds in faith and suddenly the impossible is no longer there. That's what he means when he says, who then can be saved? And the Lord responds, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. And all modern theology has done is taken all the commandments of Christ and all the requirements of the New Testament and stripped them down to something we can do without Jesus. Something we can do without a relationship with Him. You say, but if that's what God is telling me to do, I feel hopeless. That's why He said, come to me all you who labor in your hard works and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn how I do this, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light because the Spirit is going to help you carry it. God's demands for righteousness are an invitation to relationship. If your child is becoming cocky, and thinks he doesn't need mom or dad. You can imagine a scenario where you would say to them, okay, you just go right ahead. You move that barrel across the lawn because you got this by yourself. And when they go to do it, what are they going to do? They're going to realize their limitations and they're going to turn back to mom or dad. And when God tells us to do things outside of our ability, we don't sit there at the pool and say, we're just going to reckon it so. 
We're going to present ourselves as if it were so. We're not going to look at the other guy and say, by faith I'm walking. When we're not, we're going to say, God, apart from you, I can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who empowers me. Do you hear the juxtaposition of those two statements? I can do it. Amen. And we're going to stand up and begin to hobble forward by faith. Not a faith that is a lie that exempts us from obedience, but a faith that actually believes that if he said we could walk, then in that word is the grace to walk. And we're going to twitch our muscle for the first time even though we've been paralyzed for 40 years. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Okay, now I want us to look at some scriptures. Okay, who wants to get Psalms 19.13? Grady, that's you. Jonathan, let's go with Psalms 68.6. Simeon, let's go with Psalms 107.14. Samuel, Psalms uh, 116.16. Somebody else, Psalms 119 and 45. Gabe, Brother Daniel, would you mind getting verse 30, 133 of 119? Uh, Psalms 146 and 7, who wants to get it? Brother Ben. Isaiah 42.7, who wants to get it? Daniel. Isaiah 49.9, who wants to get it? I'll get it. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 52.2, Peter. Who wants to get Isaiah 61.1? Who wants to get Zechariah 9.11? Jez. Luke 4.18, Robert. John 8.32, who wants to get that? Brother Nathan. Romans 6.14. Zane, I want you to do 14 and then 18 and then 22 of that same passage. Okay, Brother Kenny, I'm going to do Romans 8.2. Who wants to get Romans 8, 15, as well as verse 21? John, Joel, I'm giving you the next one, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Who wants to get Galatians 4, 31? Derek. Uh, Galatians 5, 1. Brother Galen. 2 Timothy 2, 26. Jonathan. Hebrews 2, 15. Timothy. James 1, 25. Yes. Mark 3, 15. Mitchell. Okay, Luke 10, 19. Psalms 45, 5. Travis. Micah 4, 3. You got that, Brian? Okay, let's just go through these as I call them out. You can stand and read them. Make, make sure that you are heard. Speak as the oracles of God. Psalms 19 and 13, whoever has it. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about mastery here. Who is your master? Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Psalms 68 and 6. God sets solitary and brings out those who are bound to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. He brings out those who are bound. The question these scriptures are going to answer is, has God promised freedom for the Christian? God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. 
Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. To be destitute of the Spirit is a sign of rebellion. Psalms 107.14 He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. He broke their chains in pieces. Psalms 116 and 16. O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. You have loosed my bonds. Psalms 119.45. Thou will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Psalms 119.133. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. No dominion. It's not a question of stumbling or slipping up. It's dominion. Psalms 146.7. Who executes justice for the oppressed? Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. Isaiah 42.7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison. And what, what was the prerequisite for all of that liberation, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. None of that is possible if the Holy Spirit was not coming. But he came in Jesus and he was poured out through his name at Pentecost on all. Isaiah 49.9 That you may say to the prisoners, go forth. And to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads, and their pastures shall be on all the desolate heights. Amen. Isaiah 52, 2. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. This is the cry to the church today. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Hallelujah. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. Zechariah 9.11 As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the water I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit because of the blood of covenant. Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. He has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year. All we would need is two or three scriptures to tell us that God has freedom for the Christian. But every time you hear it, every time you hear that promise, I'm going to break your chains, I'm going to set you free, I want faith to jump inside your heart and say, apart from you I can do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And that faith is going to lead you into a relationship where you can do with him what you could never do apart from him. John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. We've never been enslaved to anybody. He said, you are. Because if you're, 
in sin, you're a slave to sin. So we're not talking about free from penalty. He doesn't leave us ambiguous. He doesn't leave it ambiguous. He's talking about freedom from sin right there. That's the freedom he's talking about. Can we all agree? Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Read verse 12 as well. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Don't let it reign. Don't let it have dominion. Do you hear it? Verse Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Amen. Verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal. Having been set free, you have your fruit. Not Jesus has it for you in a locked box called imputed righteousness. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death and they're still paying those wages. But the free gift of God sets you free. Thank you, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is the Lord. What did he say in Isaiah? And what did he say in Luke when he stood in the Nazareth synagogue for the first time and spoke about breaking chains and opening prisons. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. And then Paul says, now the Lord. He's not a man walking around talking to people at the pool. He is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit is, there's liberty. So if you find a place in your life that is still bound, that is not liberated, that is a place where the Spirit is not And if you would let the Spirit in, if you would let God have that place, it also would find liberty. Galatians 4.31 So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Amen. And what was the bondwoman? She who was born according to the flesh only. But we were born not of the will of man, nor of flesh, nor of blood, but born of God, who believed in His name and received Him. 5.1, 5.1, Galatians 5.1, somebody's got that. Stand fast in the, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. You say, but that's, that's the yoke of bondage of obedience. No, no, that's the yoke of bondage of doing things that you can do without him that you put up as substitutes for coming into relationship with him. It is pursuing righteousness, but not according to faith. If it were according to faith, You would receive the Spirit by faith when you first believe and you would have the power to do what He's asked you to do. Thank you, Jesus. Where are we at now? Hebrews 2.15. And release those who do fear of death for all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Amen. 2 Timothy 2.26. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Escaping the snare of the devil is escaping the captivity whereby we do His will, thinking it is our own. James 1.25 But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. When he does. Hallelujah. Mark 3.15 <laughs> 
sickness and cast out demons. They had power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. But we don't have the power to surmount sin's dominion in our lives? Give me a break. Luke 10, 19, context if it's needed. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Hallelujah. When he sent out the 72 and they operated in the Spirit, this was like a precursor to the body of Christ. Cooperation in the Holy Spirit. And when they came back, Jesus saw the power they had brought on the earth through His name. And the vision of this power on earth was to Him a vision of Satan falling like grease lightning from heaven. When believers begin to operate by the power of the Spirit through His name, Satan's kingdom comes down. It comes down so fast, it looks like he fell from heaven like lightning. And he says, Behold, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and every power of the enemy. Has God given us authority to tread on every power of the enemy? What power of the enemy is still plaguing you? What power has God given you the authority to tread on that power? I'm asking you, has he? He has. Not apart from him in the little capsule of your pride. Not apart from him in your detached, arm's length, analytical Christianity. But in relationship with him. Seeking him by the Spirit. Being filled with his Spirit. He's given you the power to tread on those snakes. Every single one of them. Psalms 45 and 5. Your arrows are sharp. People fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. How did they do it? In his name. Which is what? His authority. Malachi 4 and 3, You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says Yahweh of hosts. Romans 8, 37, But in all these things, we are made more than conquerors. He does not say Jesus alone is made a conqueror. In this translation, he says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You say, but that's him at the cross. No, that's him right here and now. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. That's him, the him whom you can say it was not me speaking, but my father speaking through me. That's him. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses and the tearing down of every argument and high thing that exalts itself 
above the knowledge of God. You see, theology of salvation today talks about exemption from penalty. And it talks about getting us legally right before God. But does it talk about putting weapons in your hands that are divinely powerful for treading on every serpent of the devil, every power of the evil one? No, it does not. Amen. It has robbed us. 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. If your faith isn't overcoming the world, it's a cadaver faith. If you're not overcoming the world, are you born of God? Behold, I give you power and authority to trample upon serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy. What was the first apparition or appearance of the devil in the world? How did he appear? And what did he do? He enticed mankind to sin by an allurement to a false autonomy. And Jesus significantly says, I give you power to stomp on the serpent. Genesis, the Lord brings the curse and he brings the promise. He says, I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent. There's something inside of us that hates sin. There's something inside of us that wants to be free. There's an enmity that says, I don't like this. I don't want to be this way. He says, he will bruise your heel, your offspring's heel. But one day, your offspring is going to mortally bruise or crush his head. And is that not what Jesus did when John says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been, a, has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Do you see that the enmity which God placed in us towards sin is fulfilled in the power of the Spirit released through the cross to stomp down those things that would bite our heels and keep us captive through fear. In Romans 14.4 he says, Who are you to pass judgment on another servant? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he shall stand and be upheld, for the master is mighty to support him and make him stand. Amen. The Master is mighty to support you and make you stand. Stand firm. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. What empowers good deeds according to this scripture? God is able to make all legalism abound toward you. Is that what he says? So that always having self-righteousness in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Is that what he said? God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
A lack of righteousness is an indicator of a lack of grace. 1 Timothy 2.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Why did he strengthen Paul? God empowers you when he considers you full of faith. If you don't have empowerment, it's because there's a deficiency in your faith. But God empowered me, it's the same word as strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. Amen. What does Titus 2.11 say? The grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that we don't have to worry about all that because Christ died for us. Go back to sleep, sweet baby. Everything's going to be okay. No. The grace of God that brings salvation appeared to all men. Discipling, teaching, training us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasures, to live sensibly and godly in this present age. Grace is not an exemption from righteousness. Grace is our only empowerment unto righteousness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient. Look at the connection. For my power is perfected in your weakness. What is, how is, he, what is he connecting here, brothers and sisters? Power and grace, they're the same thing. My grace is sufficient for the power that is being released through the weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Amen. Ephesians, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be empowered, to be strengthened. But it's the word empowered with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly beyond all we ask, think, or imagine according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you believe that you can be strengthened with power in the inner man? Colossians 1.10 That you may walk, live, and conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, and desiring to please Him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work, and steadily growing and increasing in the knowledge of God. We pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of His glory to exercise every kind of endurance and patience with perseverance and joy, giving thanks to God who has qualified us and made us fit to share the portion which is the inheritance of the saints, God's holy people in the light. God wants to invigorate and empower you. Otherwise, 
He would have broke his promise when he said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Amen. If we abide in him and we have a relationship with him through the spirit, then we can do all things. But if we are apart from his spirit, then we are apart from him. If any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. We can't hear his voice. We don't recognize his authority. We are not repented. Amen. What makes us recognize his voice? If we belong to God, according to John 8, 42. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. But what makes us belong to God? Those who belong to God have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In 1 John 2, he says, By this we know that we have come to know him. If we said the sinner's prayer on a Sunday evening and we've written down the date in the back of our Bible, a front of our Bible, excuse me. Don't you want to know if you've come to know him? Don't you want to know if you've got a cadaverous faith or a living faith? Don't you want to know? Because he said that there is a false faith. 1 Corinthians 15, you can believe in vain. Don't you want to know that you've come to know him? Because he said, this is eternal life. This is salvation to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. How do we know that we've come to know him? Because he's asked you to do things you can't do unless you know him. So John just simply says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. In him and coming to know him is the same thing. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How do you know if you've come to know him? If you claim it, if you say, I, I said the sinner's prayer, or I believe Jesus died on the cross. No, that may be an inert faith. That may be a paralyzed faith. That, in fact, may be a cadaverous faith, a false faith. God wants to know you. He doesn't want to set you right apart from him. He doesn't want to pass out exemptions from hell and say, don't worry about it, I took care of it. He says, I want to know you. I want to have a relationship with you. He's trying to mend what was lost in the garden. Acts 17, Paul says, God appointed the bounds of our habitation and the exact places of our dwelling for one purpose. And what was that purpose? To show us what we couldn't do without Him and thus to get us to seek Him and know Him. God gave you those limitations. He gave you a limited mind. He gave you a limited strength. He gave you a limited time on this earth. He gave you a limited life. He appointed the bounds, the limitations of your life so that you wouldn't be God without Him. And nor would you be content to be a slave without Him operating under some illusion. The whole purpose was, this will make them turn to me. Seek for me and find me. He has appointed the bounds of our habitation and the exact places of our dwelling that men might seek for Him and feel after him. 
Can everybody say feel? feel? Why didn't Paul say think after him? Why didn't he say talk after him? Your emotions are as fallen as your intellect, but God will start the relationship through the heart and not the mind. He says unless you're converted and become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. A child has no analytical processing. He has no critical thinking. He is an emotional creature. And that's what God wants with you. It is from the heart we believe resulting in salvation. Did not our hearts burn within us? Not did we have food for thought, but did not our hearts burn within us as He talked with us and opened the Scriptures to us? I hope God is opening the Scriptures for some people this morning. Not that we have not seen these things, but to see them with renewed faith and thus with renewed power. Oh God, I just wish I could get this settled. I just wish I could never have to battle this ever again. What I'm hearing is, oh God, I wish I could be good without you. Is that what you're hearing? Oh God, I just wish. No, 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 no. You need to get to a place where you say, oh God, I am so thankful I am not sufficient in myself because independence is isolation and isolation is damnation. But to be one with Christ, to be in His body, to be dependent on His Spirit, that is a relationship and that is salvation. Oh God, I thank You that I've got to seek You. I thank You that I can overcome these things, but I can't do it on my own strength. All who are being led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Don't say you're a son of God except in some imputed sense unless the Spirit of God is taking you and leading you. Isn't that what he told Peter was going to happen? When you were young, you did what you wanted to do. Parenthetical, all 21st century Christians almost. But when you grow up, another is going to take you and lead you in a way you did not want to go. The way of the cross, the way of submission. The other he was speaking of was the Holy Spirit. As many as are being led by the Spirit of God these are the sons of God. He doesn't say if you've ever had a powerful experience. He said in present tense, are you being led by the Spirit of God? Then you're a son of God. And how did Peter say, no scripture is of private interpretation, but the holy men of old wrote these things down as they were led and carried by the Holy Spirit. You've got to interpret it the way it was written in a relationship with the Spirit. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures for in them you think you have life. But they point you toward a relationship. They speak of me and you won't come to me that you may have life. Now somebody will say to me, but Brother Ossie, must, aren't we saved by imputation? Yes. Imputation is the trailer of protection hitched to an active faith. But if you unhitch that imputed protection from an active faith, then it is a trailer veering off the interstate into the ditch. 
It does not attend a corpse faith. It does not attend a cadaverous, paralyzed faith. It is a covering on an active faith. On a faith that involves the fear of God and obedience. By faith, Noah obeyed and built an ark when he was divinely warned. With godly fear, he moved. Faith gives you a warning. It gives you the fear of God. And it makes you move. Everybody say warning. Fear of God. And movement. If your faith is not giving you a warning and it's not mobilizing, it's not creating a fear like, God, I've got to do this, and then mobilizing obedience, it's not faith. It's baloney. It's a figment of your imagination. And someone will say, okay, so if we are, if it is imputed, are, you're saying we have power over sin. Are you saying we never sin? No, James said we all stumble in many ways. John said if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. I'm asking who's master. God's asking who's your Lord. What is the rule? What is the power? What is the overcoming reality in your life? You may fall on your face. You may become entangled. But will you be overcome? Peter said if they are entangled and overcome... It is worse for them at the beginning. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing to its wallowing in the mire. So Christians are going to make mistakes. Christians are going to be tempted. They may fall flat on their face, but are they going to lay there in the dust and say, this is what Christ intended. I just need to learn to cope and coexist with this failure. A righteous man may fall seven times, But what makes him righteous is that eighth time when he gets up. He falls seven times, but he gets up eight times. Thank you, Jesus. He doesn't lay there on his face and say, yes, this is how it's supposed to be. Even Moses said, when the year of Jubilee came, every slave should be set free. Unless he said, pierce my ear and make me a permanent slave. But I'm telling you right now that the year of Jubilee has come. Because he stood in Nazareth and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, and the year of jubilee. Amen. So the appearance of the Spirit is your jubilee. And when that jubilee comes, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is jubilee, there is liberty. In that moment, you have a a reckoning to do with sin. Am I going to let you pierce my ear, you old sin slave master? Or am I going to say, this is my chance to make a prison break. This is my opportunity to get a different master. I don't want to be a slave of unrighteousness leading to death. I want to be a slave of obedience leading to righteousness. Sin may knock you around. It may put a pit in your path or a stone in your way to make you stumble. It may nag you, entice you, try to entangle you. It may try to lure you back to where you were. But God, Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Now that word in English means just what it sounds like, indeed, as opposed to in imagination, in pretense. 
Thank you, Jesus. When sin comes to you, are you going to open your ear to it? Are you going to say, yep, I accept this? Or will you acknowledge that your king has declared the spirit of jubilee and liberty for you? Will you acknowledge with Paul that now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty for you? Will you acknowledge with Paul that I can do all things through Christ who empowers me? And again with Paul, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Will you acknowledge that if you're still powerless, then there's more to your relationship with Christ that is still promised to you? And if you are apart from Him, will you acknowledge that it is up to you to span the distance, up to you to draw near to God? James didn't say, sit still, sit still, you sinners, and God will have pity on you. He said, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Amen. And in Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord says, in the day you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. And in Hosea 10, 12, He says, seek the Lord until He comes and rains righteousness on you by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's conviction in here today, but don't let there be condemnation. Condemnation means with damnation. Conviction means with victory. That awareness, that weight, that piercing of your heart should put a question on your lips that says, what must we do? And the answer is get out of your static place of complacency and seek the Lord until you're baptized in His Holy Spirit. Seek the Lord until He becomes more powerful than the serpents and scorpions of sin swarming around your feet. Seek the Lord until you know you're in Him and that with Him you can do all things through His empowering Spirit. When man tells us to do the impossible, what is it? It's mockery of our helpless condition. And when God tells us to do the impossible, what is it? It's miraculous grace to be different and to transcend the limitations of our mortal condition, of our carnal condition. That must have been what Paul was speaking of to the Corinthians when he rebuked them and said, you're acting like mere men. You're acting like you don't have power when God has given us the Spirit and we know we do have power. Lord, don't let us hear a mockery today. Don't let us hear God shaming us, reproaching us. Let us hear an invitation today, a hope, a future and a hope, a power and a victory and a life in God beyond our highest hopes. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.